I invite you to turn with me on your uh, worship folder. We're looking at 1 John, the very last verse of chapter 3, and then verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. We're doing our series on 1 John. We're just kind of going through it uh, section by section. But we're particularly focusing on um, the fact that John does a lot of these statements uh, uh, that reveal the nature and the character of God. And then he reveals how we're to respond in, uh, in kind to God's nature and to his revelation of himself. So let's read God's word together. Uh, I like it when you read out loud with me. So let's read the word of God. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming... And now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So as we study this together, and I'm going to ask you that you sort of allow that your minds be a little bit theological this morning. You know, I know it's, what, 9 o'clock in the morning. Hopefully you've had your coffee and not too too many bagels. And you can think somewhat theologically this morning, because this is a This is a foundational, biblical, theological passage. John returns often to a similar theme throughout his letter. And the theme is this. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're a Christian? What what are the tests? What's the affirmation? And in a deeper way, it's not just a religious Christian, but it's how do you know that you are in right relationship with God? How do you know that you're truly a Christ follower? And so that very last passage, that uh, that last verse of chapter 3, says very clearly that there is a spiritual origin of the knowledge of God and that, that we know that we know God because we know the Spirit of God. And then he, he gives in this uh, chapter 4, he gives really two tests of how you can know you're a Christian. The first test is really a truth test. Do you believe the truth? The second test is a love test. Do you know love? Are you giving love? Are you receiving love? So today we want to look at the first test. It's really the first test is the truth test. If you, if you look, he says, uh, we know that he, speaking of The life of Jesus, the life of God, lives in us by the spirit that he gave to us. And then he immediately, after talking about the spirit of God living in us, then he goes, but there are other spirits. 
And these other spirits have to be tested. Um, this, for many people, is, is a very scary idea. That uh, you could be influenced by a spirit. Matter of fact, some, some Christian people would rather believe they're just evil, wicked people than to believe that they're being influenced or oppressed or even controlled by an evil spirit. And yet John says, basically, that, that everything that proclaims itself to be true has a spiritual origin. And that things that you believe, things that you've heard about yourself did not originate from the person who said them to you. For example, any accusation that you have ever heard has come from the enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes the Spirit of God doesn't point out or reveal to you something that convicts you, something that makes you sad. But the, the distinguishing mark that Paul makes is he says, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of something, when he reveals something of a defect in your character, or reveals something of, a, of a, a flaw in your thinking, or reveals bad choices that you made in the past, Paul says he does so so that you can change. Now, the Spirit of God is never trying to mire you in the weaknesses or defects of your past. He's always trying to point out things in order to strengthen and build your character. But the enemy of your soul uses the same events or similar events from your past or even finds unchangeable events, accuses you on the basis of those events because he wants you to be mired and bound to regret. Regret is one of the least productive emotions you can ever have because there is nothing you can change about it. It gets you into... And seeing the weaknesses, the defects, the, the bad choices, all of those things, and then makes you believe you will never be able to change. <laughs> God makes the impossible possible. Okay? The devil makes the possible impossible. All right, that, that was worth remembering right there. All right? <laughs> God makes the, poss the impossible possible. Satan speaks to you even about your potential. Even about your potential and says, no, you can't do that. You will never do that. That will never happen for you. And so what John is saying is that you're going to live a life interacting, whether you like it or not, even if you're a highly scientific person, you're going to live your life interacting with spirits. And he says, the test is truth. Is what they're saying true or is it false? See, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a fascinating thing when you actually listen in your own head. Most people don't like that, so they put earplugs in with music or something else on so they don't have to listen to their own heads. But your head should be the safest place on earth. If it's not, it's not because of you. It's because of what you're allowing to speak to you. And what happens is when, 
when we get you quiet, when we get you to sit still and listen, what you'll hear is influences that come from spirits. If you listen to those spirits, they will destroy you. Because they, ha they, ha they are aligned with their leader who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so even your own thoughts, John is saying, have to be tested to see where is the origin of this thought. Now, a thought can also produce adrenaline. It can stir you up. It can give you all kinds of stuff. And a lot of people will mistake adrenaline for the Holy Spirit. And then be mad at God because I said, God told me. No, adrenaline told you. You mistook it for Holy Spirit because you didn't test the Spirit. Okay, now, are you tracking with me on this? Look, I mean, in a big way, in a big way, John says false prophets came out from us. They came out of the church. So he's saying to them, there's an urgent need for Christians to not be gullible. And the way that we, we deal with that is we begin to apply truth to the thoughts, to the words that are coming. Now, one of the things that's happening in our, our day and time is that there are certain words that uh, one scholar said, there are certain words that are applause words, and then there are certain words that are hiss words. Okay? So... All the world applauds you if you say, I am spiritual. Everybody goes, oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> you know, like, I went out on the Palisades, and I sat above the river. <laughs> and I had such a spiritual experience. Okay? You know, ugh. <laughs> Give me some granola, you know? <laughs> but everybody goes, oh, you're so deep. <laughs> River's deep, jump in. <laughs> Just kidding. Somewhat. All right, but then if you start talking about truth, and that there being truth that applies to all of us, it becomes a hiss word. <laughs> You know, almost immediately, oh, that's true for you, but not true for me. You know, and, and so what John is saying is, is in every age, it is so easy to be gullible. And we who are believers, John writing like a grandfather to us in the faith is saying, I don't want you to be gullible. So here's some of the things that he gives to us. He says, the first test of any spirit is... Is it of God? The first test of anything that purports itself to be truth is, is it of God? Think, think about this for a minute. Uh, there's, a, there's a reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unchanged for 2,000 years. 2,000 years, same gospel, same truth, same Bible. And yet, the things that most people believe that are so important in this day and time, will seem stupid 30 years from now. If we go back to the 1960s and read editorials from the New York Times, we would laugh at them. And yet, in that time, those were the wisest comments in the world. You, you have to begin to look and say, 
is my life based on the supposed wisdom of this age, or is my life based on something that is eternally true? Unchanging. Because in, in many ways, whether you know it or not, your greatest emotional need, not just your intellectual need, but your greatest emotional need is for security. It's to feel safe. And when the foundations of your life are not based on truth, you cannot be safe. Well, Jesus had some things to say about this as well. He actually said it this way. He said, there will be those who will, who will stand before me on the judgment day. And they'll even say to me, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We taught in your name. And Jesus said, will say to them, he himself said this, depart from me, I never knew you. Why is that? Well, because these people didn't test the spirits that they were operating in. Of course the enemy can counterfeit anything, almost anything that God can do. The enemy can prophesy. I one time did a, a deliverance on a missionary. I did a, had a deliverance session with a missionary who told me the story that when he was 14 years old, a demonic spirit began to influence and control the way he thought. But the demonic spirit gave him a gift. And this was, this was many, many years ago. But the demonic spirit gave him caller ID before there was caller ID. Okay, Before there was any caller ID, this guy could tell you who was calling on the phone. And he used it to, so that people would be impressed with him. Okay? So in a sense, that's a prophetic, counterfeit, prophetic gift. And he loved it because he was kind of a geek and a nerd. And in this way, he actually could have friends. But in order to have friends, in order to do caller ID, he had to give himself to a demonic presence. When he got to the mission field, he had not dealt with that demonic presence. He still had it. So he went to Africa he went and spoke with a, uh, a shaman or a, a witch doctor. The spirit started beating him up physically. The spirit started overwhelming him, and, and he had to come home and was utterly depressed, despondent. He came to, to uh, do deliverance with us when I was still in Atlanta. And while we were, we were walking him th through a thing called the Steps to Freedom, while we were walking him through this, he went blind, he went mute, uh, he began to have all kinds of physical manifestations, all kinds of stuff happening. But by the end, when we finished, he was free and he was delivered. And, uh, you know, because the blindness was an evil spirit, you know, thwarting his ability to see, muteness was an evil spirit thwarting his ability to speak, and just through the truth of the word of God and by him coming to a place where he renounced his openness and his willing participation and his love of his false gift, he was able to be free. And today he still is free. You see, there's more going on here than simple philosophy. There's more going on. And what, what John is saying is, that the thoughts that you believe that originate from the father of lies have only one purpose, and that's to destroy you. And when you willingly participate 
You're participating in your own destruction. But Jesus said that there's, and, and Jesus said there, that this gullibility, that this, this ability to be deceived is so great that there will be those who thought they did everything in his name, and he will say to them, I never knew you. Why? Because they never knew him. Not because he's unknowable, but because they chose the easy route. They chose the counterfeit and called it Jesus. I've been in the church my whole life. There will be a lot of people from the church who will realize when the truth appears that they chose the counterfeit. Because it was easier. Because it, it had more to do with them than it had to do with him. Look, in every age, Satan has certain lies that work. In the truth test that's there in verses 2 and 3, John says it this way. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Pretty simple test. The one who cannot confess Jesus is actually, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, you must understand, it would be easy if the Antichrist looked like Antichrist. But the Antichrist looks like a very close copy of Christ. This is why John is giving us this, this teaching, because it's so close. And because the Antichrist stays near Christ. It would be lovely. I've seen people before. They said, well, you know, the devil can't be anywhere near where the Holy Spirit is. The devil camps out where the Holy Spirit is. He has every other place. Every other place, he doesn't have resistance. He has resistance where the Holy Spirit is. And you must remember, friends, the satanic abilities, resources are not unlimited. He's not everywhere present. He's not all-powerful, and he's not all-knowing. So he has to, to limit his, his resources to strategic places. That's why when you start to get right with God and you start moving with God, he will send more resources against you in those times. When you're just doing what he wants you to do, he, he just leaves you in your bonded and bound state. As long as he has handcuffs on you, he doesn't need to put more handcuffs necessarily, though he, he can if he wants to. But once you start getting free, that's when he gets nervous. And he begins to bring lies. And the lies usually are very uh, crafted. He's crafty. There's a craftedness to the lies. And so one of the lies in John's day was this lie that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. Now here's what this means. It's a brand of what's called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was a Greek philosophy that sort of, sort of made a very strong, I would say, separation between that which is spiritual and that which is material. If something's spiritual, it's good. If something's material, it's basically at, at its root, it's evil or, or less than in any way. So here's what, the, here's what this brand of Gnosticism that was trying to creep into the teaching of the church what it was trying to do, it said Jesus was, you know, born by natural conception. In other words, there was some man involved in, and Mary. And it doesn't matter, they said, it doesn't matter if he was illegitimate or he was legitimate or whatever else. Because 
again, there could be no virgin birth. And so there had to be this, there had to be this sort of total material, natural birth thing going on. And then what they said was that when Jesus was baptized, the Christ came upon Jesus. Another way of looking at it is this sort of this messianic being, this sort of God person, came and inhabited Jesus, the man, at his baptism. Okay, So then when he went to the cross, that sort of Christ being or this God person left him. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken him? This is the brand of Gnosticism that John is dealing with. So you can see, if you look closely, now this is why I asked you to track with me today, okay? but if you look closely, John doesn't say Jesus came in the flesh. He says Jesus the Christ came in the flesh. See, he's, he's, they, the Gnostics would say Jesus came in the flesh, but they wouldn't say Christ came in the flesh. They would not want or believe that this spirit being would really have anything to do with the flesh of a man. Because that's the wicked, the evil, the dirty, the, all that kind of stuff. And so here's what John says is Jesus Christ. So he's, he's speaking out this mystery. Again, it is a mystery, but it's a beautiful mystery that our Jesus is fully man and fully God at the same time. It's not a mingling of the two. He's not half man, half God, sort of X-man. No, he's fully man, you know, completely taking in his incarnation our flesh, you know, in a sense, giving dignity to humanity and saying to the Gnostics, fooey on you. Because the material can be just as good as the spiritual and just as holy and just as pure because God himself inhabited a human body. I mean, when you start to see this, you begin to realize, man, John, he in just a few words, in just a statement, is putting Satan right back in his place. And he's he's purifying the church. Isn't it beautiful when you see it? See, what, what they were trying to say, and this, this was always sort of the goal of the Gnostics, we don't need atonement. We don't need a sacrificial death. We just need knowledge. Think about that for a minute. The more we know, the more idiots we seem to become, you know? And the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. You know, and it's so true. If you, if, see, what they're showing is it's all about me. It's all about me, but not in the right way. Because the beauty is God makes it all about me, so I don't have to make it all about me. Because it is a sacrificial death on my behalf. And there has to be, you see, in order to truly embrace The gospel, there has to be a recognition. I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me. But I am so loved that Jesus chose to die for me. See, when you get that, when you see that, you know, you're like, I just want want the dignity of my knowledge to be puffed up. You're like, that just sounds stupid. 
when you realize, you know what, I don't care how much I know, it doesn't cleanse me from my past. It's only when something really cleanses me and takes my guilt away and takes my shame away. No amount of knowledge is ever going to take your guilt or shame away. If I could put it in a really simple way, let's suppose, I suppose you're a pretty good person. Most of us like to call ourselves good people. Um, but let's, let's reduce your sins. Let's say instead of sins, you have traffic violations. Okay, let's just say traffic violations. And suppose, you know, suppose you only sin three times a day. All right, we know better, but we'll say three, three times a day. All right, we'll just guess three times a day because you're on the Palisades at least once a day, right? And a, a few sins come forth there, I would imagine. So, so let's say there's three times a day, but let's make that three traffic violations a day, whether it's speeding or parking or whatever it might be, but you have three a day. At the, suppose you live then to be 70 years old. Okay, a person with three sins a day would be seen as a pretty holy person in a lot of ways. But at the end of a year, that's a thousand violations. At the end of 70 years, it's 70,000 violations. Can you imagine what a judge would do if you were to stand before him with 70,000 violations? Yeah, he'd throw the book at you, right? If you even still had a car, you know. All that kind of stuff. And, and, and just thinking through that, just even if you're a good person with a pretty good heart, down to three sins a day, and you stand before the righteousness of God, you stand before the holiness of God, and you say, well, I only have 70,000 sins. And that's if you were really, really conservative in terms of your sins. I only have 70,000. And no judge could stand that. And yet Jesus has said, if you'll admit you're a sinner, if you'll admit that you're in need of a, an advocate, of a savior, then he'll stand in your place. And instead of you paying the price of your violations, he pays the price. And then he puts it on his tab. It's on his justice tab. And, the, and the stand, you're standing before the court. And if it was said to you, how will you pay for your life? And Jesus will say, I've already paid, and my father will never take two payments for the same thing. See, I, I think when you get it clear like that, you start to realize the confidence you, you can have. See, the gospel gives you a confidence. But there is this issue, and the issue that, that's kind of coming up in our day is not so much why truth is important, but more... What benefit is it to me? In a sense, um, it's almost like these great truths have been reduced down to, well, will it help my marriage? Will it make me more money? Will it make me safe from harm? Will it, you know, it's almost as if instead of uh, a God to whom we're reconciled, we're getting related to a genie who then performs according to our wishes. And then our religion is like the bottle for the genie. You know, uh, I used to watch, I'm old, but I used to watch I Dream of Genie. And, you know, you put, the, you know, the genie was annoying. You put the genie back in the bottle. When you needed it, the genie, you got the genie out of the bottle. In some ways, the way we're live in our day, the way we're trying to live with God is we're trying to get a bottle for God. 
So that when we need him, we call upon him. When we don't need him, we put him back in the bottle. Well, that's the nature of religion. And what John is, of course, saying, one, God is not a genie. There is no bottle that can contain him. There's no religion that can contain him in that sense. And so it's, it's about relationship. But it's also a relationship with truth. Now, I can guarantee you this, that if God is in your life, your marriage will be better. Your family will be better. Your, your, your understanding of your finances will be better. Your understanding of, of life itself will be better. But that's not the reason to have God in your life. Because sometimes finances don't go so well for Christians. I've seen marriages not go so well for Christians. I've seen families not go the way you wanted to go, even though you prayed. You stay with God because it's true. You stay with him because it's true. This is the test, you see. This is why John makes it the test. Not the test of how well are your circumstances going. It isn't a test of how well or, or, or how you know, happy you seem to be or whatever you know, kind of uh, criteria that you use for happiness. The criterion is truth. Well, there tend to be these tests then in every generation. And, and John wrote it this way. And he's talking to us. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So you begin to realize this is the truth that I have deep inside of me. Is that whatever else is going on around me, the one who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Last week we talked about God is greater than even the condemning accusations of my own heart. But this week he's saying that that which is now in your heart, that is God dwelling in you. And, and he's saying here that truth becomes person, a person. It's more than a set of propositions that you adhere to. It's more than a confession or a creed that you recite. That the truth is a person who dwells within you. And everything that's true of him is now indwelling you. And that what is in you in him is greater than what is in the world. <laughs> and see, what this does, and I, I'm not saying this is easy. But what this does is it changes the way you're looking at the things that are going on in your life. You look at them and you, and you go, this is bigger than me. I mean, you know what a good definition or a good understanding of stress and distress is? Is the sense that the demands on me are greater than the resources that I have. That what's being asked of me, what I'm going through, what I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for is greater than the resources I have to, to uh, overcome. And yet, here's this truth. That if you are in Christ, and you may be looking and saying, man, my family's a mess. My marriage is a mess. My business is a mess. You may be looking at all those things. But if you look at those things without first saying, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, you will be overcome just like any other mere mortal. But if you start from this position, yes, this is overwhelming to me. Yes, I don't know the solution to this. Yes, I'm not sure how long this thing is going to last. I don't know when it will be over, but I know this. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And then John says, through that, you overcome. 
See, there's an intellectual element here to Christianity. For example, one of the things I could say to you is we could argue content of Christianity. We could argue theologies. We could argue philosophy. There's witnesses to be believed about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's over 500 eyewitnesses. We could, we could get into an arena like uh, Ravi Zacharias or somewhere like that, and we could fight for truth, and, and all of those are good things to do. But in the end, what John is saying is this is spiritually discerned. So if today you're one of those who says, I get it, it's not because you're smart. It's because the Spirit revealed it to you. And John, interestingly enough here, he calls us little children. He goes and go, my wise colleagues. <laughs> this is little children. Why? Because when you really get it, you realize it's not because I'm smart. Because sometimes the God of the smart is not a very nice God. It's the God of little children. The one who makes it clear enough that a child could understand and complex enough that the smartest guy can't. I mean, John uh, is just saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For example, um, if you're here today, and spiritual things of the Bible, truth of God from Jesus, if the gospel itself is resonating with you, you can be assured it's because the Holy Spirit is working. It is more than just, oh, this makes sense to me. This is the Spirit of God making you alive in Christ. That's what, that's what Paul, that's what John says. Because he said, in your natural state, this is foolishness. You know, it says he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, in other words, the truth then makes a fundamental difference. And you'll see it in your family. You'll see it among your friends. It makes a fundamental difference or division in audience. John says it this way. He says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Okay, that's a, that's a division of audience. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. And a spirit of error. That's a pretty strong statement. But it's not unlike what Paul says in Galatians 1.8. He says, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, as, as wonderful a man as John was, as awesome a man as Paul was, even if an angel shows up and tries to teach you a different truth, you kick them out. You send them on the on their way because it's not the man who has the authority. It's not even the angel who has the authority. It's the truth that has the authority. And what Paul and what John are saying is God has deposited into us as the apostles of Jesus Christ. He has deposited into us a faithful and trustworthy thing that you can base your life on. And if somebody comes and says there's another truth, you say, see ya. I always like this illustration that, that uh, when people are learning how to uh, spot counterfeit American currency, they do not spend time with the counterfeit. 
They spend time with the genuine. And once they know the real, then they can spot the fake. There are people who love to spend time with the counterfeit, but they've never met the authentic or the genuine. Why does this matter? Well, I was reading a book this Are you still with me a little bit? I know I... I was reading a, uh, a book this weekend. Uh, I, I, I like the pastor from Bethel, Bill Johnson. Um, my wife had bought the book, but it was a, she bought the uh, paperback version. And I got word this week that the digital version was free. So there's two things I like, free books and on my phone. You know, that, that's just, to me, I just love that. I carry an entire library in my iPhone. But uh, so I was reading through this book. It's called Strengthen Yourself in the Lord. And I was thinking about this in terms of this truth test. And uh, what Johnson is referring to is a, a passage in 1 Samuel 36 where it says David strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, listen to me on this. God said this about David. Even before David had done anything, he said, this is a man after my own heart. This is a man with my own heart. You know, the same passion, the same love. And there were two things that uh, Bill Johnson points out that were true of David before he ever became king that, that probably were the indicators that David was a man after God's own heart. One was that David maintained the manifest presence of God when no one was around. Most of his psalms, most of his, his songs of praise to the Lord, he didn't write them for a big audience. He wrote them for an audience of one. The second thing is that long before he ever became king, he lived in an absolute dependence on the Lord. We see this because we see the story of the lion and the bear. Long before there's a Goliath, David had in his private struggles learned to depend on the Lord. He said, the lion came to steal the sheep. Again, remember, it's just David. There's nobody watching. There's no reality TV. There's no, there's no arena or anybody else. There's just David and the lion and David and the bear. And he could just as easily run away, but he chose instead to depend on the Lord. And he said, the Lord delivered me out of the mouth of the lion and out of the mouth of the bear. And then when the public opportunity came, he said, what's the difference between Goliath and a lion and a bear? The same Lord who delivered me from the other two will deliver me from this one. So you see, what, what, what is God saying here, friends? In a sense, all of us like to be kings when people are looking. But God makes kings and queens out of us when no one is looking. So that when everyone is looking, the private triumphs become public victories. Now, that passage, David strengthened himself in the Lord, comes at a very opportune moment. If you remember... David was anointed to be king. It was, it was between 10 and 13 years before he actually became king. No one went through more trials than David did in those 10 to 13 years. And then one of the things that it talks about is that he drew a following. But if you read about the following, there were people who were in debt, running away from their debtors. There were people who were morally kind of bankrupt and all kinds of things. They were not people you would choose 
But because David was on the run and because David was in hiding, there was no one else to follow him except the rejects of society. But because of David's leadership, because of the way he trained them, the way he poured into them, again, when no one's looking, they became David's mighty men. Well, the story goes that at one point, you know, Saul has rejected him, of course. Israel has rejected him. Even he's working with the enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. The Philistines tell him to go home. Johnson says it's really bad when even Satan rejects you. They go back to their, their camp. They go back to where they've been living. And uh, another group of people have come and stolen all their women, all their kids, and all their property and have left their camp burning. And it says David's mighty men got fed up with David and wanted to kill him, stone him right there. All right. At that point, would be probably logical to give up. But instead, it says David strengthen himself in the Lord. What does that mean? It means everything that John is talking about here. It means the truth is not changed by the circumstance. He who is in me is still greater than he who is in the world. But it is only really revealed when you face those circumstances. It's only when you overcome that you're an overcomer. <laughs> That's, it's hilarious sometimes. People want to overcome, but they want nothing to overcome. Want it all to be easy. And yet David strengthens the Lord. So he looks at his, his men, and the words of God says, he says, let's go get our wives and our children. The men go, oh, that's a good idea. And they throw the stones down, and they go with him. Now, that's not the response you would think. He'd have to persuade. He didn't even have to persuade. Let's go get our wives and children, men. Okay. All right. Why? Because the Lord was with him. The Lord was on him. They went back, got every child, every wife, all their possessions, and they had a complete victory. That day, Saul died, Jonathan died, and David became king. He had no idea that was going to happen. He didn't know how much longer his trial was going to be. He didn't know how much longer his struggle was going to be. But there was a decisive battle. But it wasn't on a battlefield. It was a decisive battle here. It was an aha moment here. Does it make sense to you? Will you stand with me? I don't know how long the stuff you have to go through is going to go. I don't know... When your family's going to come all right, your marriage, your friendships, your work. I don't, I don't know, but I know this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I know this. You've got to preach it to your own soul. And then guess what happens? God will prove it. God will prove it. Because it's not about your defects. It's not about your weaknesses. It's not about your past. That's all about regret. What he's saying is look forward the God of the impossible is within you. He is the truth. And he is bringing that to you. Would you take a stand today with me? Take a stand. He who is in me. Whatever you're facing, he who is in me. See? And the biggest victories are always won in private. They're always where you make your heart the altar. That's where it changes. 
Lord, we ask that you would seal this up now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We got some folks that would pray with you. If there's something specific you want to pray about, if there's a victory to be gained, they'll pray with you d- during our uh, in-between services. Sometimes it's just good to, as a couple, as a family, as an individual, it's just good to come and say, let me just make this agreement with you before God. God bless you. We'll see you next week.